You're now listening to Keep Lefty, program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is Irene Bolger and myself, Chris Gaffney. Well, uh, last week I started talking about the Russian Revolution. You did. And I want to complete, well, conclude this part of it, because, of course, it's the centenary anniversary. Now, we pointed out that Russia in 1917 was essentially a feudal country, 70% of the people were peasants and only 25% were workers. Now, normally with that sort of proportions, you would have expected the next revolution to be like the French Revolution of 1789. That is that a feudal society would go to the next stage of capitalists. But although in Russia, although only 25% of the the people were workers, they were in mainly large-scale concentrated factories with the owners being overseas capital, not native capitalists, so that the native capitalists were weak and mortally afraid of the workers, far more than they were of the Tsar. So unlike the French Revolution, the revolution would not be capitalist revolution against feudalism, but a working-class revolution which would skip this capitalist stage and go straight to working-class rule, in other words, socialism. Only, of course if the very backward Russia was aided by revolt in the advanced capitalist countries. So that's where I left off last week. Uh, by 19, early 1917, the degeneration of the regime had proceeded apace. The war had weakened the, uh, Rush, the Tsarist regime, uh, crippling it, really. Uh, the Tsar had entered into a system of military alliances with the democratic republican government of the French Empire and the constitutional monarchy of the British Empire against the German and Austrian empires. And eventually, as with the nature of capitalism, rivalry led to war. The war started in August 1914, and to quote Lenin, it was a bourgeois, imperialist and dynastic war, a struggle for markets and for freedom to beat foreign countries a war to deceive, disunite and slaughter the working people of all countries by setting the wage slaves of one nation against those of another so as to benefit the capitalist bosses. It was also a war that made unprecedented demands of the various warring countries. And of course, the weaker countries went to the war war quickest. There were lack of munitions. Soldiers were sent into battle without guns and bullets often. The small number of factories for the production of armaments uh, was was scandalous. The sparseness of railway lines soon translated the backwardness of Russia into the language of defeat. Think about this when you hear someone bleating about how the Tsar was killed by the awful Bolsheviks. About 15 million men were mobilised by the Russians. About 5.5 million were counted as killed, wounded or captured and approximately 2.5 million were killed. In the cities, food shortages, shortages of clothing, fuel, of all the necessities of life, grew worse and worse for the poor. The rich, glutted with profits from the war, feasted, while cold, hungry workers slaved away for 10, 12 and 14 hours a day. In the factories and the army, the influence of the illegal socialist organisations, mainly the Bolsheviks, which simply means majority in Russian, began to grow. Yet even they didn't understand how rotten the regime had become, how easily it could be overthrown. The initiative came from the women textile workers of Petrograd. 
February the 23rd in the old calendar, or March the 8th in the new calendar, was International Women's Day. Trotsky writes, the social democratic circles had intended meeting speeches leaflets. It hadn't occurred to anybody that it might be the first day of the revolution. Not a single organisation called for strikes on that day. The women demanded bread from the authorities, which was, to quote Trotsky again, like demanding milk from a he-goat. The Bolsheviks, expecting a quick defeat, reluctantly led the metal workers out on strike, and on February the 23rd, the day after, the same day, 90,000 workers went on strike. There was no violence because the Tsarist officials were worried that the army wouldn't obey orders to shoot the workers. Because by early 1917, the Tsarist army, mainly peasants, was almost as disaffected as the workers. By the third day, a quarter of a million workers were on the street. The soldiers were coming over to the workers, and on February the 29th, the Tsar abdicated. But who was in power? The workers of Petrograd and the soldiers of the garrison had actually made the revolution. A Petrograd Soviet of workers' deputy, Soviet just means workers' councils, sprung up at once, and soon worker Soviets, soldier Soviets, and later peasant Soviets sprung up all over Russia. Not created, we might note, by any of the political parties, but by the working class themselves. But the leadership of all the important Soviets at the beginning of 1917 was predominantly in the hands of the more moderate Mensheviks and representatives of the peasant parties, the so-called social revolutionaries. For them, the next stage of the revolution was a democratic capitalist republic. Russia, they said, was not right for socialism. As the workers' representatives were in fact in power, they'd just made the revolution, they must hand power back to the liberal representatives of capitalism. A provisional government was patched together from members of the Duma, which was a fake parliament set up after 1905. The government had no real support, but for the time being, this was enough. The provisional government was headed by a Tsarist nobleman. <clears throat> the bourgeois liberals were concerned to restore order in the army and the factories, and even restore the Tsar, although not the discredited Nicholas. <coughs> Pardon me. They also stood for the continuation of the war as well as the submission of the Poles, Finns, Balts and Central Asian people to the rule of Mother Russia. There was limited talk of home rule for these peoples, but as with much of the provisional government's talk and that of its socialist supporters, I mean the Mensheviks, it was a question of waiting for elections to a constituent assembly, a sort of pre-parliament. When would that come about? Well, later on. The Mensheviks increasingly adopted provisional government policies. Lenin and Trotsky were in exile, and Stalin, who was the editor of Pravda, wrote in March that the Bolshevik attitude was, quote, Our slogan must be to bring pressure on the provisional government in order to compel them to make peace. Lenin, in exile, wrote in Letters from Afar, rebuking Stalin for this. He said, quote, To urge that government to conclude a democratic peace is like preaching morality to brothel keepers. In April 1917, Lenin arrived back in Russia and in a speech he declared no support whatever to the provisional government. He argued at a Bolshevik conference for overthrowing the provisional government, all power to the Soviets, a revolutionary peace policy, socialist construction at home and international revolution abroad. 
Inside the Bolsheviks, actually a majority of people opposed Lenin because they still had this idea that the next stage would have to be capitalist rather than working class dominated. The majority in the Bolsheviks argued for pressure on the provisional government to get them to do the job, to complete the bourgeois democratic revolution, that is, keep capitalism but bring in parliamentarianism and all the rest of it. Lenin said, I'll leave the party if this, my view is not supported, and that won the day. Note, note carefully that Lenin's view was a change from his earlier stance and was a move much nearer to the views advanced by Trotsky in his work Permanent Revolution, published in, in 1905. Now, the question of every revolution is state power, but what developed in this revolution was a situation of dual power. And I'm quoting Lenin here. Alongside the provisional government, the government of the bourgeoisie, Another government has risen, so far weak and incipient, but undoubtedly a government that actually exists and is growing. The Soviets are workers' and soldiers' deputies. It's a revolutionary dictatorship. That is a power based directly on revolutionary seizure, on the direct initiation of the people from below, and not on a law enacted by a centralised state power. The power is of the same type as the Paris Commune. Now, in fact, the Soviets were capable of running production, transport and communication, and they represented the real power that could replace the entire capitalist state machinery. But they were dominated by the Mensheviks, think Social Democratic Labour Party, who stood for a capitalist republic and whose policies would eventually mean the end of the Soviets. The provisional government told the French and uh, British governments, who had major investments in Russia, that they would not make a separate peace with Germany, which provoked mass demonstrations of more than 30,000 soldiers. Only the Menshevik leaders of the Soviets were able to persuade the soldiers to disperse, and the government begged the Mensheviks and the social revolutionary leaders to join the cabinet, as they would have influence over the workers. This they did, and Kerensky, who was a social, a social revolutionary, was the main driving force of the government. At first, Kerensky launched a successful offensive against the Germans, but it was doomed. The miserable Russian armies continued to starve and die, while all over the countries, the railways were breaking down, food supplies were dwindling, factories were closing, speculators flourished as foodstuffs and fuel were sent, secretly sent out of the country to Sweden, where the capitalists could make more money. A prominent capitalist, Lyadznozov, forgive my pronunciation, said this, Starvation and defeat may bring the Russian people to their senses. Revolution is a sickness. Sooner or later the foreign powers must intervene here as one would intervene to cure a sick child. It was people like this who produced fabricated evidence that Lenin and the Bolsheviks were German agents. During June, although the Soviets still had Menshevik majorities, demonstrations in Petrograd carried predominantly Bolshevik slogans. By July, even more formidable demonstrations were demanding all power to the Soviets, and this led to a near insurrection in Petrograd. The Bolsheviks tried to hold this back because they knew that, though they could win in Petrograd, Russia as a whole was not ready. This line was unpopular with many Bolshevik supporters, but once the insurrection began in July, it was the Bolsheviks who assumed the leadership. As predicted by the Bolsheviks, the uprising was put down, and a certain demoralisation set in and support grew for various anarchist groups.
The provisional government seized its opportunity and arrested Trotsky, while Lenin, putting on a wig, escaped to Finland. The government was again reorganised with the socialist majority, that is, Mensheviks and social revolutionaries. The effect was short-lived. Soldiers continued to desert and military advance turned into retreat. Peasants were seizing the land and the economic situation continued to deteriorate. By September, the power of the Soviets almost equaled that of the government. The Bolsheviks were now a majority in the Soviets and government decrees were often vetoed by the Tsarists, by the Soviets. A Tsarist general, General Kornilov, started to march on Petrograd with at least some of the provisional government ministers in league with him. Now, some Bolsheviks favoured supporting Kerensky's government against this right-wing general. Lenin and Trotsky said, yes, we've got to fight Kornilov, but it would be wrong to support Kerensky in the provisional government. Lenin's policy prevailed, and the Soviets marched against Kornilov with separate ideas and slogans, and when Kornilov was beaten, the Soviets were ready to challenge the government. The government, getting more and more desperate, then proposed a democratic conference on October the 7th for the purpose of setting up a parliament. This was an attempt to try and reconcile the Soviets to its power, which many Bolsheviks supported. They argued that the revolution should and must lead from the Soviets to the establishment of bourgeois parliaments, and the participation in the parliament was necessary to complete the democratic revolution. The Bolsheviks, at Lenin's insistence, withdrew on October the 10th, 1917, and on October the 17th, the Soviets set up a military revolutionary committee, headed by Leon Trotsky, which became the organ of insurrection. Amid rumours of yet another right-wing attempt at a coup, soldiers and workers took over Petrograd, which is now Leningrad, of course, or St. Petersburg, took over Petrograd on October the 25th, 1917, or November the 7th in our modern calendar, under the direction of Trotsky. Once the Military Revolutionary Committee had arrested the provisional government ministers and taken the Winter Palace, they handed government authority to the All-Russian Congress of Soviets, which was then meeting in Petrograd. The Menshevik members walked out, as did the right-wing social revolutionaries representing the richer peasants. The first Soviet government was set up by the Congress, which had a large Bolshevik majority. Lenin said this at the time, Within Russia, a huge section of the peasants have said that they have played long enough with the capitalists and will now march with the workers. The peasants will understand that the salvation of the peasantry lies only in an alliance with the workers. We shall institute genuine workers' control over production. We must now set about building a proletarian socialist state in Russia. And so it was set up. All right, that's all I want to say on that. I'll deal in later weeks with events that happened after the actual takeover and in particular with the degeneration of the Russian Revolution under Stalin. Last week I was talking about uh, feminism and Marxist theory and um, and there's some interesting questions about what might be the source of women's oppression uh, and oppression there is even to this day of women uh, and it hasn't it's changed a bit but not dramatically. It might have changed for the sort of bourgeois bourgeoisie but it hasn't changed much for working class women. 
Um, and there were some examples of errors and omissions in Marxist theory concerning the oppression of women. Uh, it's not completely silent about women's oppression. Uh, Marxists recognise the sexual division of the working class and see it as an obstacle to the unity of workers. Um, but unfortunately, the solution is still the same one as we put forward to Engels, as was put forward by Engels 100 years ago. The massive introduction of women into social production and the socialisation of domestic tasks. This has led to a belief that women will be returned to a position of equality by the destruction of private property system, as, this, as if this was a national, natural process of history. To see how Engels arrived at his conclusion, let us look at his understanding of the origin of women's oppression. Engels believed that in primitive society there was no inequality between the sexes. Rather, there was a natural division of labour, but it did not lead to any form of exploitation or oppression. With the development of productive forces, the domestication of wild animals and the possibility of raising crops, leading to the possibility of accumulating a surplus, came the development of the private ownership of the means of production and the division of society into antagonistic classes. This then led to the development of the patriarchal family and the state. The development of the productive forces gave rise to a new division of labour, where women's production had only private and domestic use value, while men's activities had exchange value. <coughs> the new property which men acquired through the control of the means of production <coughs> had to be transmitted to men's own descendants. For this, the monogamy of women was essential, this led to a reversal of maternal right, children belong to the mother, and the establishment of conjugal marriage, monogamy, and the domination of men over women and children. Since Engels developed his theory, many anthropologists and feminists have contested many of his basic premises. Is it true that the work women did in primitive society only had only use value? Why was it women's labour which couldn't produce exchange value? Here briefly are a few elements of reply. Karen Sachs indicates that Engels made a number of specific ethnographic errors. Engels believed that men were always the collectors or producers of subsistence. It has since become clear that for gathering hunting societies, the reverse is closer to the norm. And for horticultural societies, it's often women's horticultural activities which are the basis of subsistence. Engels also believed that the domestication of animals preceded the cultivation of the soil. Today, as a result of more recent research, a more commonly accepted theory is that cultivation and pastoralism developed at the same time. Antoine Artus, in his article on the family, explains how before the development of a market economy, it was women who produced pottery and handicrafts since these products were related to their tasks of cooking and working around the home. But when these products acquired exchange value, this was product. This value was take, work was taken over by men. Uh, <coughs> there are anthropologists who feel that uh, there's no proof that a genuine matriarchal society ever existed, nor is there evidence that a matrilineal system always preceded a patrilineal one. A sequence which is essential to Engels' arguments, which state that the patrilineal system developed when men needed to transmit their property to their sons. Still other anthropologists feel that men began to dominate women in primitive societies because they wanted to control women's reproduction and kin relations because of the low development of productive forces which made human labour power, and thus children, the first social wealth and the means of production. 
So are there any solutions to this? Um, the first solution put forward was the massive entry of women into social production. On this point, what is often forgotten is that socialism does not change the fact that work, the work world in which, into which women enter has been organised and structured for and by men, and still is. It is a male world and a world in which there is a clear sexual division in which women are relegated to jobs in feminine ghettos where they do work which is nothing but an extension of their domestic tasks at home. It is a world where women are on the bottom rung, be in terms of wages, work conditions or possibilities of production, uh, promotion. And that, that's still, uh, to a certain extent, uh, and if you look at, uh, if you're going to look at bourgeois women uh, who are trying to break through the glass ceiling, they're still having great difficulty. You get the occasional one which uh, has, there's always publicity when you get women who actually fight their way through. And, but that, that is not necessarily the uh, aspect of liberation of women that we're looking at because well, it's not, what, help working it's class not women, helping it? working class women one bit and all you're getting is women who are bosses <laughs> who are going to behave like bosses and... Uh, and don't have some special aura about them because they happen to be women. It's a bit like um, people who don't understand feminism saying, well, you must have thought Margaret Thatcher, be supportive of Margaret Thatcher because she is a woman. What a uh, argument that is. No, no, I wasn't supportive of <laughs> Margaret Thatcher because she was a woman. Um, but no, it doesn't help uh, working class women. And the, and the issue still is, and I might say, uh, this was... Um, this became very obvious back when, and I keep getting back to the accord in so many ways, but it, it was pivotal really because uh, back in the 80s when the accord was brought in uh, by men, it, um, it really did cause huge problems for women in women's work because it was based on a, a pay increase based on an increase in production, which was something that was considered could be measured. A lot of women work in areas like nursing and teaching where you can't measure production as such. You're not producing anything. Bed, number of bedpans. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yes. How many, uh, how many patients do you look after in a day or how many people do you wash or, you know, how quickly do you get them through the ward? Um, and, and I can recall when with time and motion studies were being done <laughs> of nurses in the 70s, you can't do it like that and it doesn't work like that. And it's actually uh, really had an impact over up until now in terms of how women's work is paid because it, they fall behind because they're always looking around for ways of negotiating a pay rise that doesn't, isn't necessarily based on an increase in production and they've had to give up uh, hard-won gains in other... Well, they haven't had to, but they have given up gains in other areas uh, to get a pay rise. And, and in, wage increases have, um, since then uh, have... Uh, have have become very, uh, what's the words I'm trying to think? Well, they non-existent? Have, well, almost, <laughs> yes. I was, almost non-existent. Um, so the question is, can women be integrated into social production on an equal basis? Uh, first of all, we have to ask ourselves the question, what equality are we talking about? Does women's equality simply mean the right to work? Does it mean the possibility of becoming like a man, where men and male characteristics are taken as the norm, which women must attain, and all incapacities on the part of women to do so are seen as being personal character deficiencies. But perhaps the most important problem remains that women will never have any kind of 
kind of equality in social production and society in general, as long as the sexual division of labour within the family is not attacked. And I can't believe at my age, after all these years, it's still a problem. It is true that the classical Marxist program calls for the socialisation of domestic tasks to liberate women from this burden. But the abolition of private ownership does not automatically lead to the transformation of private domestic labour into a social industry. Domestic labour will not leave the private home on its own accord. It will take a specific struggle to socialise it. And the difficulty is now that we've gone backwards because back in when I had my son as a single parent in 1971, there was no single parent pension and I went back to work within two weeks. Uh, but... The, the the childcare back then was cheaper. The hospitals had started to put in childcare mm. centres and it was cheap for those of us who worked at hospitals to put our children in. Councils, mo- all, most councils had childcare that they ran themselves and they ran in a way that it was affordable. Mm. Though, and they've disappeared. Um, though, and now it's been taken over by... Uh, and so there are hospitals that still run childcare. Mm. Uh, but childcare otherwise, and there were also women who business. used to take children into the home. There was home care. I don't know whether home care is still there, uh, but that was cheap. Now it's big business. It's uh, enormously, enormously expensive, and the only people who can afford it are the rich, bourge- people. The rich people. And you ha- and and uh, and it's some people are paying up to six hundred dollars a week for. Well, they might have somebody come into the home. Uh, where I live, there's a huge childcare centre just opposite me, which is very well resourced. There's about four floors of it. Uh, very expensive. And so working class people can't afford it. And the problem is that women and feminists, we don't seem to have arrived as a solution as to how you make men uh, equal participants in, first of all, the housework and looking at keeping the home and secondly, the children. And even now, you do have there are pockets of men who will have taken it over, or who do it for part time, part time, or work part time, or whatever. But they're in the absolute minority, and and this is something that I find extremely difficult to deal with because mm. uh, that male privilege is still there. That's why males are still able to work full-time to obtain promotion because the women have to go into part-time when they have children and they have to uh, then they miss out on promotion they're not considered to be as valuable as workers and so that continues on and I don't uh, in some ways I don't know whether politics can fix it Uh, it seems to me that it's 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 personal and political it's um, And the personal should be political, but yeah, what happens is yes, leaving right. it up to individual women to have to deal with the male is not the answer. Not the answer no, no. And so there has to be a movement, really, where women feel supported in in trying to deal with how that's... Democratise the workload. Yes. Uh, and in some ways I see that maybe uh, in in Israel, for instance, where and I don't know whether they still have... Um, I've forgotten what they were called. Kibbutzes. Yes, kibbutzes, where the children automatically went into childcare and uh, right from the start, and the women went out to work. Uh, I don't see too much of a problem with that, but um, no, that no. there's general socialised childcare. 
But if there's not that, then really men have to start stepping up. And uh, it would be far better off if we had a four-day week for all workers um, or if, and so that men and women can both take their turn at working, but that if there was uh, a shared consciousness about what has to be done in the home, it's no good just coming home and expecting the woman who's working part-time to have done everything. No, quite. Which quite. a lot of men do. Yes, they do. That's uh, why I never got married. Uh, oh, listeners. I can understand that completely. <laughs> Marriage is only for men. It's no. I was never ever life. going to put myself in a situation where that might happen why to should, me. Why should you? Um, so I have to finish up. Um, but uh, the socialisation of these tasks, um, if if we're going to follow a Marxist view of program for the socialisation of it. Um, requires a strong, well-organised economic base for the monetary costs are enormous. It's estimated that domestic production accounts for 33% of the gross national product. A study in Sweden showed that 2,340 million hours per year are devoted to domestic labour, compared to 1,290 million to industrial production. And we just have to think of how governments in advanced capitalist countries are so hard-pressed to set up even a few daycare centres because of the tremendous financial investment. So we don't have governments running childcare no. or councils running childcare. No. Well, there's money to be made, isn't there? Yes. People, uh, I'll give you the number, and uh, the number to ring up is your chance to ring up, 94190155, 94190155. I'll start again. Nine four one nine zero one double five nine four one nine zero one double five. I always thought the difference between working class women and bourgeois women comes out on the question of abortion. In America, the women's movement there put up the demand um, free abortion on demand. Well, middle class women objected that because I think why should it be free? <laughs> Where, of course, unless it was free, working-class women couldn't have one. Afford it. Well, the problem with the Americans, though, is that they don't have a public health system. No, that's well, that's right. And that's the difficulty. So abortion on demand yeah. versus free abortion yeah. on demand showed the class division exactly. within women. Because you can't all. have free stuff. That's uh, well, wait, communism. That's all. That's why they think over there. That's why they're getting rid of Obamacare, which was uh, not hardly even... Socialism. Hardly socialism. Hardly socialism. 